News. 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 New York City. The FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I am Harry Siegel in Brooklyn here with Professor Christina Greer. Hello. Hello there. Also in Brooklyn. And we've got a lot to get into. We're going to be talking in just a minute to our friend in Albany, Jimmy Vilkant. But first, here's Alex Brooklyn coming at us from Manhattan with this rundown of the news. Hi, Alex. What's happening? A quick list of what is happening in the city at the moment. There's two new cases of the, quote, UK strain, end quote, in NYC, one in Manhattan and one in Queens. Both were diagnosed in late December. The vaccine rollout is bumpy, to say the least. On Monday, Cuomo opened up vaccine eligibility to New Yorkers over 65. The city has rolled out a 24-7 vaccination site program that has some NYC senior residents traveling really far distances overnight to some appointments. State and city websites are reportedly not always syncing up, leaving some to wonder if they really do have an appointment at all. The city does have a phone number, though, to help those without access to a smartphone or the Internet. It's 1-877-VAX-4-NYC. That's V-A-X-4-NYC. On Wednesday, Mayor Bill de Blasio declared that Trump was officially canceled. The mayor condemned Trump's traitorous actions and said that the city would move to cancel all contracts with the Trump organization. According to the mayor's office, it is simply a matter of giving notice in regard to the Central Park carousel and the ice skating rinks. However, terminating the contract for the Ferry Point golf course is a bit trickier. The city claims that it's possible to do so since the contract is contingent on attracting big, even huge, golfing events and is pulling the contract in light of the PGA terminating involvement with the Trump Organization as a response to the events in D.C. last week. Also, speaking of the events in D.C. last week, Brooklyn boy Aaron Mostowski, son of BK Supreme Court Judge Stephen Mostowski, was arrested on Tuesday for his heavily documented involvement in the Capitol building riots. He was photographed in fur hauling around a police riot shield. The FDNY has informed the FBI of those members that may have been among the mob in D.C. And so far, the NYPD says that it is investigating one member. On Monday, Bill de Blasio said that any city employee would be fired if they had been found to participate in the Capitol Hill mob. Although it's too late for some small businesses, the city is re-upping the PPP, Paycheck Protection Program. And for more info on that, go to nyc.gov PPP or call 888-SBS-4NYC. So it's Wednesday afternoon. And joining us is Jimmy Vilkind, Albany reporter for the uh, Wall Street Journal, who's going to take us through what's happening so far three days in to uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo's epic four-day state of the state. Uh, But first, I I wanted to ask you, Jimmy, if if you could explain what's happening now with the uh, vaccine rollout and how that's going in the state and in New York City in particular, because – I, for one, um, I know the governor sometimes gets upset when people say this, including you, and confused as to uh, how this is going, who's eligible, and all that. So I think as of this week, the state's approach kind of shifted from 
hewing closely to the guidelines, prioritizing, and really trying to get every healthcare worker with a shot in their arm to just flooding the zone. As of Wednesday, the Javits Center on the west side is open as a state-sponsored mass vaccination site. New York City is doing a 24-7 operation at City Field, uh, home to the undefeated New York Mets, as well as the existing distribution that's going on at hospitals, at pharmacies, at healthcare clinics, uh, and now some private doctor practices, including places like City MD. So this has actually been a, a story of kind of to me and, and to many people I talk to in my reporting, it just sort of illustrates the classic Cuomo approach to the pandemic in general, which was to centralize power and also to make it so that he was in control of decisions, of distribution, etc. And you heard a lot of people say that that caused problems with this rollout. So, for example, normally counties uh, in the city of New York, which is a collection of five counties, but counties around the state have health departments that are mandated to develop mass vaccination plans. They have systems in place to do this. They have done mass vaccinations in response to previous instances of disease. And they were bypassed in the earliest days when the doses first became available on December 14th. They were sent to major hospitals in each region of the state. And Governor Cuomo's thinking was that our first priority as a state was to vaccinate high-risk healthcare professionals, ER nurses, uh, the doctor who's going to be intubating a coronavirus patient. Those are obviously the first people you want to get the vaccine. And predominantly, they work in hospitals or around hospitals. So they have some nexus to these hospital facilities. But as the universe of healthcare workers expanded, there seemed to be some problems with that system of distribution. Uh, EMS workers, people who are uh, EMTs, paramedics, ride ambulances, they were pretty quickly included in that 1A group, but they don't necessarily have a nexus with hospitals. And so hospitals who are not used to coming up with the logistics of getting people in and putting them in a certain place where you're going to have a line of people giving shots, they were all of a sudden in this business of doing so. And meanwhile, the counties who had expected to be doing this work were just sort of sitting there with their hands in the air and their eyebrows raised, um, saying various versions of, I told you so, when the percentage of shots distributed by the state of New York started to, to dip below other places like Connecticut, the Dakotas, or West Virginia, which are sort of leading the pack on a nationwide scale. So we had Mayor de Blasio say that he wanted to give the shots to people who are older than 75 and also to New York police officers. Governor Cuomo said no. Uh, and as even the most casual listener to this podcast uh, knows, when a city dad says yes and state dad says no, um, state dad always wins. That's just the way the Constitution is set up. So no was the answer, but but over time, pressure grew. And on Friday afternoon, Governor Cuomo uh, decided to move a little further down the CDC's eligibility requirements. He opened up to a broader universe of people, and he said that we're going to be starting these state sites. So that brings us to this week, where Harry, as you say, you're confused, and maybe you weren't paying attention uh, closely, but you know, now we have kind of several places and ways to, to have these, these shots distributed. One way are healthcare facilities, as there has been. 
doctor's offices, doctor practices, hospital practices. One way are state-controlled sites, special sites. In my neck of the woods, there's going to be one at SUNY Albany. Uh, again, in Manhattan, there's going to be one at the Javits Center on the west side. Uh, Westchester County Convention Center is going to be a distribution site. And these, these will be administered by some kind of state officials. I, I don't know if it's the National Guard or someone like that. You also have major employer groups and unions that have sort of taken on their own plan at the encouragement of the state to distribute vaccines to their members. The United Federation of Teachers is one such group. They've been working on this and moving forward with it. So to sign up, you actually have a two-tiered process. You have to go to a state website. I believe it's miligible.coronavirusvaccine.my.gov. Um, should edit in the correct website, somebody. M-I-eligible.covid19vaccine.health.ny.gov. So you have to determine that you're eligible, that you're over 65, that you're a teacher, that you're a nurse, etc. And then you have to schedule an appointment. And I know in my neck of the woods, they were scheduling out appointments through March. Both my parents are over 65. Sorry, mom and dad, I, I threw you under the bus there. Uh, but they have appointments for some time earlier in March. And uh, that's where we're at. In the city, at least, the scheduling appointments part is you have to call different places to get them. And so right after this was announced, you had lots of people who were calling 15 places, going to websites, and they'd be overloaded. They'd be down trying to figure out where they could actually go to schedule appointments. You know, these things are difficult but like that. That was not an ideal rollout. And I also know that the city field is going to be a mega coronavirus vaccination site, the mayor says. Uh, and it's going to be open 24-7. I'm not clear if that's from the state or the city, but I am a little confused having it that way when there are no 24-hour trains and uh, how people are going to be getting there. Just speaking of things, the city controls versus the state. Well, and I think one question that's going to be important going forward is if there is going to be amount X of vaccine doses allocated to the state of New York globally, how will they then be distributed? Will New York City and the city field site get a lot, get a little? Will there be more available at the directly controlled state sites? Um, that's what my spider sense would tell me. What about counties who are in charge of doing first responders and have their own sort of plans? So I think very soon you're going to hear and see some kind of conflict and uh, scrambling among the various distributors to get scarce supply. And of course, Governor Cuomo has already said, we just need the federal government to release more supply or give us more supply. I'm sorry, last thing for me, but up until now, if I'm not mistaken, the issue has been less the supply than the universe of people it's available to. So, so the concern's actually been on the other end that we might end up wasting some of this supply because when we were strictly in this 1A group, and it was it was much older people and and some medical responders that that, that we ended up with a lot of uh, doses that were going unused, right? And that that's part of why they're opening this up. That's right. That was the main concern. There there were stories around the state and in the city. Uh, here where I am in Albany County, the county executive said there was an instance where the county-run nursing home, the head of the county-run nursing home, called them up and said, "Hey, I got twenty extra doses that they thawed, but everyone at this nursing home who." wanted a dose, has been offered it and said, no, what do you want me to do with these 20 doses? And so the county executive said, well, on the one hand, we get fined if we don't give out all our doses. On the other hand, we get fined a million dollars if we give out a dose 
out of the, the, the rigid lines. So he basically, um, he said he, he let him go. I think one term he originally used was flushed, but I think he, he walked that back. I don't think they actually flushed him down the toilet. Uh, but it, it, it makes your point, Harry, right? You know, you could make three phone calls and get four squad cars of cops very quickly to get to a certain place. And boom, 20 people are vaccinated. But they didn't do that because of the rigid uh, structure here. So this looks like corruption in the making now, because when we have sort of lack of coordination, we've got certain penalties that will likely be enforced sometimes and not others, then we, we know that as we increase the number of doses and, and the rollout, it's only going to get more confusing because of the sheer numbers. Have we been able to look at Governor Cuomo's book to find any of the solutions? I know that he wrote that book a few months ago, basically case closed. I've accomplished everything. Clearly, there's, there are no clues in his, in his latest book about any of this. I'm being facetious, Jimmy. <laughs> yeah. I can see you're like, I don't know. No, I'm totally being facetious. I, I think my question, you know, I, I'm part of the 1B group as an educator. And so they're expanding it, not just to teachers, but also professors who are thinking about going back in the classroom at some point in time. Is there any substantive conversation coming out of the governor's office about prison populations and those who are in jail since they're being disproportionately uh, infected? No, they have not been put in the population. Um, and I, I, I think that the, the political overtones of that are are probably the, the best explanation. The governor hasn't talked about it uh, and said anything um, but he has been resistant to calls since the start of the pandemic by some to release more people from prison, uh, potentially older inmates who are at higher risk sitting in a congregate facility like a correctional uh, mm-hmm. facility. So I, I don't he has not put um, I don't think he's made any special allocation or arrangement for the inoculation of prison inmates, even though there are some who will be over 65 years old and are therefore Right. Can you elaborate on the uh, on, on when you say the political overtones there? What what those are for the governor? Because it, it seems it seems cruel, honestly, to me uh, when you have a confined population and older people. But uh, you know he, he's a smart man. I'm sure politically at least he has his reasons. And, and I was hoping you could just sort of explain what those are. Well, you know, it, it just goes back to the concern by by some Democrats to be sensitive to attacks that you're soft on crime and soft on criminals. So there were some negative feedback from Republicans about giving priority to people in uh, OASIS, which is the uh, Substance Abuse Services Division of the state, people who are dealing with uh, either alcohol or drug addiction, getting priority at one point. Um, You already hear a lot of talk from Republicans that Democrats, uh, through some of the policies they've enacted in the last two years regarding bail, regarding discovery, regarding uh, other criminal justice mechanisms have, have been sort of sensitive in prioritizing the needs of criminals over people. And so I, I think Governor Cuomo saw that line of attack and didn't want to deal with it. So you, you spend a lot of time with the governor, Jimmy, and it seems like he's consistently passing the buck in the sense that whenever things aren't going smoothly, he says, well, it's not me, it's the federal government. And so how much of that is really true? Because we've seen the federal government right now is literally on fire. How much of that is the governor working within the constraints of our federal system? And how much of that is just Andrew Cuomo giving the perception that he's effective, but actually is 
kind of a mess and sometimes a failure. Well, you could fault the federal government for not having a proactive planning process here. Their approach has basically been to delegate this this operation to states. Uh, Governor Cuomo has complained that there wasn't funding or much funding associated with that. Um, I believe there is some money that's flowing through some of the relief bills. Um, but I, I think the easiest way to answer that question, Professor, is to just look at the state-by-state approach and the state-by-state percentages. Uh, so New York, as of the last time I checked, was somewhere in the low 40s. It's going to vary um, minute by minute and day by day. Uh, Connecticut was at 60%. And so my colleague, Joseph Davila, uh, he wrote a great story about Connecticut. And the, the state health commissioner was very clear, said, we attribute our success to constant communication and coordination between state officials, county health departments, and our hospital systems, who normally compete, but who we put all on the same page. Mm. So I don't, I don't know who could make that statement in New York with perfect credibility, because that has not been the experience that we saw. And I think what was interesting about this is that normally these kind of disputes happen in private phone calls. It was happening on Twitter mm-hmm. last week no, between the mayor's office and the governor's office. So, I, Well, I mean, I, we've I, also I, seen the mayor and governor behave as though they are in high school. I, I think, you know, before I turn it back over to Harry, um, the health commissioner piece is really interesting to me because we know that Andrew Cuomo struggled with playing well in the sandbox with with almost anyone, what is his relationship with the health commissioner? Uh, And is that part of the breakdown in what we're seeing as far as effective dissemination of the vaccine? Well, everything that I've observed since the pandemic began was that Dr. Zucker has been pretty dutiful in um, both advising uh, Governor Cuomo and has been completely on the same page as him with all major decisions. Uh, So I, I don't sense any kind of friction or, or space between them. If anything, there are people who have perhaps criticized Dr. Zucker for not being a more assertive presence and pushing back on decisions that uh, Governor Cuomo was perhaps driving. Last things here, and then, then I think we should turn to the uh, state of the state. Um, to be fair to, to Governor Cuomo, he doesn't always blame the federal government. Uh, sometimes he does blame uh, local health agencies and, uh, and, and mayors for breakdowns as well. I've been a little stuck on figuring out where exactly the buck should stop on the federal level. You know, you've had this rollout that has basically just dropped much of the cost and uh, all the procedure onto the state Um, on the state level here, as you've said, like, like the governor has made himself sort of the decider and then has has shifted things around. And and this hasn't in the early implementation, it seems like gone super well, just judging by the percentages I'm curious if the the issues with nursing homes that the governor has disputed over um, earlier in the pandemic play into this. And I'm curious if, if at this point there's any way that he could open this up and sort of allow uh, localities to, to to play a more assertive role as we move forward and as this opens up or are we locked into this dynamic uh, for the duration. I believe he has. Uh, as of last week, um, I think Friday the 8th, and then there was actually a call with uh, – Dr. Zucker, uh, Larry Schwartz, who's a former government official, um, airport concession company executive, and also in charge of New York's vaccine rollout, also a member of the MTA board. uh, And he may have some other things that he does um, in his spare time. And so Schwartz basically said that counties would have a bigger role going forward after weeks of them complaining and talking about how they were excluded. And my understanding is that as of this week, they do. 
So speaking of this week, just fill us in broadly on what we know so far three days in uh, to the state of the state and what that suggests for the governor's agenda in Albany this year and how it's likely to intersect with the newly assertive, fully democratic legislature's agenda for the year. Well, so the state of the state is always a a tricky wicket uh, in the fact that governor gives usually a big policy speech and says, this is what I want to do. And then a week and a half, two weeks, sometimes three weeks later, depending on where you are on the political calendar, uh, they have to release a budget, which is how I'm going to do what I said I wanted to do. And right now we're in that weird between period where we have some ideas and some goals, but we don't have really many details or any of the how that it's going to be implemented. But what we did hear this week was that the governor is thinking and, and directing his focus toward reopening the economy and, and sort of trying to pivot from the effects of the coronavirus. So this is going to include things like a guarantee of affordable broadband for New Yorkers who have lower incomes. It's going to include a big investment in green energy infrastructure, be it transmission, be it offshore wind generation, be it traditional solar uh, mass energy storage facilities. Uh, He's also talked about creating a public health emergency corps to help distribute the vaccine and prepare the state for future emergencies. One thing that I thought was most interesting was he talked about trying to encourage the repurposing of commercial space. Uh, Think of those big office towers in midtown Manhattan to housing. And on one hand, you can solve two problems with one. You've got probably a surplus of commercial space where fewer people are going to be going to the office every day and companies are going to start to think, well, why do I have five floors of this skyscraper? Couldn't I make do with three or two? And of course, something I don't have to tell anybody about, which is the the high price of housing because there's more demand for it than there is supply within the five boroughs of New York City. So those are the big points of his agenda so far. And on Thursday, we expect we're going to hear about just some new things that the governor wants to build. Every year he likes to to be sort of do an FDR, Keynesian, New Deal. We're going to spend a lot of money, build a lot of things, generate a lot of jobs, make the world a better place forever and ever and ever, yada, yada, yada. And so we'll, we'll hear more about that tomorrow. But what we didn't hear was some of the progressive policy proposals, which were big things like canceling rent, making massive investments in social programs prompted by higher taxes on the rich. Um, and then maybe some big changes to criminal justice policy, things like eliminating solitary confinement, uh, even a, a broader release of inmates and incarcerated people from facilities. And we also didn't hear any kind of big embrace uh, of the Republican and the, the political rights agenda, which is basically to just go for a reopening, go for something big, roll back these restrictions, limit the role of government. So Cuomo is himself. He's somewhere in the political center. Uh, and taking fire from both sides, but he is there in an elevated position of power uh, because he has amassed a lot of power over the course of the pandemic, both sort of political capital from Mm -hmm. high approval, higher recognition, and also internal legal power through legislation that was enacted last March uh, and the practice um, of the governor vis-a-vis the legislature. How's Cuomo feeling walking in with this very powerful Democratic majority? Do we do you think you're going to see a teeny bit of a shift in behavior or are we just going to see centrist Cuomo that we've pretty much seen these past few years? 
My my assessment based on talking with uh, people who are close to the governor is that he he doesn't see the legislature coalescing in a major way uh, against him, mostly because the legislature has not particularly coalesced against him. We saw a few examples in 2019, the biggest one being the, the rent laws, where legislators got on their own page and just sort of threw one at the governor to sign or veto. But we are now, how many years? Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, we are now in our 11th year of the Andrew Cuomo era, and he has never had one of his vetoes overridden, even on legislation that passed nearly unanimously by the legislature. Um, and I think that that goes to some of the things that we know about the governor, which is that he he does play the, the political equivalent of the full court press. Uh, and both Carl Hasty and Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins know this. They know that even if you can get him on one thing, you're going to need him on 17 more. And they're going to think very long and hard about when and how they want to sort of escalate to what, what I would see as a Know, probably something like a nuclear option. Mm-hmm. So I think the governor's advisors and team are not expecting um, some kind of, ma- now that the Senate Democrats have hit a magical two-thirds majority, they're not expecting a raft of progressive proposals to, to just come their way that they would otherwise and probably prefer not to see come their way because of all the things I just mentioned. And also because are you going to get two-thirds majority votes for every single one of those proposals. The Senate Democrats, and that's probably the best example here because it may well be the limiting factor, um, that majority includes members from Long Island, some of whom were very stung by the lines of attack that I mentioned earlier about the criminal justice law changes that happened in 2019 and 2020 during the last election cycle. Almost all of them were reelected, but they were certainly stung by it. You have upstate members from Buffalo, Rochester, and Syracuse in the Hudson Valley uh, who have a very different perspective on things and have different priorities for what the state should be doing and looking at. So I I don't know exactly where there will be uh, a big clash. The likeliest front seems to be the question of taxation, which will likely unfold in the coming weeks and months as uh, lawmakers develop, evaluate, and enact uh, a new budget for the state. Shifting, uh, Shifting levels of legislature here, Joe Biden's going to be president. The Democrats are going to control both houses of Congress. We've had going on a year now of both the mayor more desperately, as is his fashion, and the governor more implicitly saying, look, this is going to come down to what Washington can provide. We didn't create this problem. We can't solve it. We can't print our own money. They can. Is there significant new relief likely to come this year? Or was that always a pipe dream that's that's now going to get shown up just as we're looking at pretty big deficits, you know, in the billions for the city and the state going forward from the, uh, the hit we've taken sort of because of the virus. And as Cuomo said, really because of the economic impact of the public health measures to mitigate the virus more immediately. Well, I think it's important to remember a few things. One, there, there has been federal aid that's been allocated. It just hasn't come in the form of a check from Uncle Sam to Andrew Mark Cuomo or, um, you know, Warren, Warren W. Wilhelm. 
you know, just saying like, here's, here's some billions of dollars, do whatever you want to fix your budget. It's been dedicated for programs like schools, for Medicaid reimbursement, and that has provided some budget relief to both the state and the city, including uh, the legislation that was just passed in December, which had money for education in it. So I do think you will see some unrestricted funding delivered to the states uh, as a result of, of what Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi say is a top priority of the Democrats in Congress and in the White House coming forward. But we have to get an understanding of the scope of the problem here and the potential size of the solutions. So New York is entering this coming fiscal year, which starts on April 1, with a projected $8.7 billion deficit. And that's on an operating budget of plus or minus $100 billion, just so people have a sense of the whole scope here. The current fiscal year, which we're starting up, is only balanced because they put on the ledger something that said, asterisk, $8 billion of reductions to social service grants and school aid, etc. But they didn't actually enact a cut. They've been holding back some payments. Some of it they've backfilled with federal funding. Some of it at some point they're going to have to recognize ain't coming and they have to figure out what they're going to do with it. And for the last nine months, they've really successfully punted uh, a pretty hard conversation among the state legislature and the executive branch as to how that savings is going to be realized, whether it's going to be some kind of cuts, whether it's going to be um, selling Long Island to the state of Connecticut and raising revenue or whether it's going to be raising some other kind of taxes or fees. So that's really going to hit the road next week. And federal aid will be a part of that. But the question that I think we have to see is, do you just balance your budget or propose your budget and say, we're going to get X in federal dollars? Okay, thanks. <laughs> you know, And is it a big X? Is it a little X? Uh, and to what extent is this being done as sort of a stiff arm by the governor against legislators who are really eager to raise revenues, uh, both politically because they think that we have an unequal society and high earners and high wealth individuals should be paying more for social services that will in turn, you know, disproportionately benefit lower income and, and less wealthy people. Uh, that's the big question. And so, you know, the three variables I'll be looking at for the budget next week are what are the federal aid assumptions? What are the taxation assumptions? And how is this fight, which has again been brewing, but has not been a shooting war for the last nine months, how does it heat up? So, Jimmy, for me, I want to know what are sort of beyond vaccine distribution, what are some big policy issues you're looking at in 2021 in Albany uh, for the council and working with the governor? And then who are some members of the assembly or the Senate that you're kind of looking at a little more closely to be leaders and pushing? certain agendas forward? Those are great questions. So I, I think other than the fiscal stuff, which sort of is, is what rules it all, you know, marijuana, <laughs> um, what? you know, marijuana, which I'm, I'm told is available to New Yorkers now uh, and has been, but the, the state wants to, to tax it and regulate it and, and um, <laughs> make it legal, even though it's, you know, it, it's, 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 it's not, Particularly illegal now, um, especially not if you're, you know, if you're a New Yorker who looks a certain way. Um, so that's that's of course going to be of mm -hmm. interest. Uh, you know, mobile sports betting. There's uh, something the governor said he was going to move on. 
Uh, there's a lot of money and interest at stake. And I think gambling expansions generally, the state has three additional casino licenses that it could theoretically issue at some point. Uh, each of those licenses is going to come with a big chunk of change from a casino operator who thinks that they can make the money back. So that'll be interesting. Even in a COVID world. Even in a COVID world. Uh I'm also interested to see uh, what happens to sort of uh, gig economy workers. Um, That was a push that happened uh, in 2020 and in 2019, but it, it sort of fizzled out, especially as the pandemic hit. Uh, And we saw in November, California voters in a referendum essentially took the side of gig economy companies in saying that their employees should not Mm -hmm. um, be kind of capital E employees who are subject to many of the wage and hour restrictions, workers' comp systems, etc., as someone like me who gets a W-2 and a paycheck from big corporation XYZ. Uh, so I, I'll be very interested to see what happens on in that regard and whether that's going to happen this session. In mm. terms of in terms of people, um, you know, Harry alluded to one of the big questions, which is how assertive will the legislature be? Will they retake some of their ground? Uh, so that that's a big overarching question. Uh, on the Democratic side, we now have I think seven or eight. DSA-backed socialist legislators? Will they work as a caucus? Will they pick their spots? Will they be sort of... Because there have always been people on the the left fringe of of the political spectrum in Albany. Will they gain force? Will they uh, be recruiting more members? Have they spooked sort of the, the leaders of the democratic power structure whose members they took out in these last elections? People like like Aravella Samotas or Felix Ortiz in Brooklyn, who lost their elections with significant backing from the central party structure. Uh, I'm curious to see how they comport themselves. And and on the Republican side, um, you know, I'm very interested to see what the New York Republican Party decides to be or if it just tries to take a middling, muddling um, approach through. We've got Congressman John Katko from Syracuse, who's voting for impeachment of Donald Trump. We've got Congresswoman Elise Stefanik from the North Country, who is is saying that Donald Trump acted correctly. She voted to object to the results of the election and has remained a pretty vocal defender of the president. So who's the real Republican? Uh, Who will be the Republican Party going forward in New York? Uh, Will they try to, 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 to lean in heavily to one side of that spectrum or the other? I think that's a fascinating question. And ultimately, even though the Republicans don't have majority control in either house of the legislature and they don't occupy any statewide offices right now, uh, life is long. Mm -hmm. So the way that that question resolves itself could have lots of influence on state government going forward. And then this is my last one before I let you go. 2022. Fourth time's not always the charm running for governor. (laughs) And, you know, the Cuomo's kind of feel like a Greek tragedy to me in some ways. And Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo has been able to rise like a phoenix from sort of political obscurity. You know, it seems a little difficult to make the case to voters that you should give me a 13th year in office, even though I, I, I don't know who would who would be able to flex on Andrew Cuomo. Because, as you, as you said, he's enjoying so much national notoriety and this perception that he's handled coronavirus so well and. You know, he's been such a great leader of 
the state. And in some ways he has. Like, I, I'm not taking all of that away from him. But are you are you feeling anything in Albany? Are, you, are people sniffing around to see uh, what 2022 looks like uh, for the gubernatorial race? Yeah, I mean, I expect there will be a left flank challenge to the governor. There has been both of the last two cycles. Uh, I mean, a credible it, left flank challenge. Well, what would one define as credible? I would not define an actress with zero electoral experience necessarily credible. Okay. Uh, that's me. I think I think that's the big question. So there will be a left flank political challenge See. to Governor Cuomo. Uh, we've seen that it's 30 to 35 percent of the vote is there. They're ready to go there in a Democratic primary. So if you get someone with lots of funding, if you get someone who is a person of color, it can eat into sort of the... Um, the governor's support among black and Latino voters. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you get to 40%? Do you get to 45%? Do you get to 50% plus one? Um, for years in New York politics, we've seen that these left flank challengers, it's 30 to 35%. And so will we get a real robust answer to that question? I don't know. I think probably uh, but that would require lots of people rowing in the same direction, lots of groups rowing in the same direction, who, in my experience, don't usually row in the same direction. Uh, <laughs> and so, on the other hand, you have Governor Cuomo um, doing a job that I believe he would, if he could, do until the day I die. Um, you know, he's basically uh, a smart person who says he was raised in captivity in Albany, you know, and, and just sort of like there for the duration. I don't know if you remember who said that professor. I but, always uh, say that he's raised yeah. in captivity, <laughs> but I use that as a dig. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I do but, think but, he knows but, more about Albany than any of us. And, put and together state, times 12. New York, New York is a big complex state. Mm-hmm. There are lots of constituencies. They all have needs. They all have personalities and Andrew Cuomo has spent, he is 63 years old now. He spent 46 of those years mm-hmm. learning this mm-hmm. and um, developing these relationships. Yeah. And understanding the evolution of these. And I think that's sort of the difference between a Cuomo and a Clinton is that the Clintons get frozen in time with what demographics look like in sort of constituencies. Cuomo, to me, seems as though he's evolved and understands how Buffalo has changed or Syracuse has changed, or Ithaca has changed, or Albany even, uh, which helps him. But I'm just curious as to, it, it seems to me a little difficult to make the case for a fourth term, especially if you have, say, a moderate Republican, even though the Republicans don't know what to do with themselves, or a significant and legitimate left-leaning Democrat. So let me jump in here for one second to uh, wrap a couple things together that Chrissy was just bringing up. And I think bring us to to a close. Um, before we get to twenty twenty two, I believe we have a we have a twenty twenty one, and we're going to decide on a next mayor for New York. Functionally, we're going to decide it in June in the uh, Democratic primary. The story of New York over the last eight years, in a lot of ways, is uh, I know the governor does not like to call it a vendetta, but uh, Governor Cuomo like beating the hell out of Bill de Blasio for a bunch of reasons, maybe going back to de Blasio winning, saying, I have a mandate, you have to give me this millionaire's tax when Cuomo has to run the next year, right? So whoever wins this race, they'll be the mayor of New York and have a very high media profile, the new mayor of New York, right? When Cuomo, 
most of the legislature's running and all that. Who does Cuomo or what sort of person does Cuomo want there? What sort of person does he definitely not want to be the mayor of New York? And if you're running for mayor as a candidate and then as mayor, how should you be thinking about dealing with this very, very powerful man who's certainly going to be there when you start and uh, maybe there, you know, for a whole his fourth, your first term? Uh so I, I think that we, we, we know that Governor Cuomo would like somebody who's more moderate and who's not uh, one of the more prog- on the progressive side of the spectrum. I think part of the frustration and the uh, friction between himself and Mayor de Blasio is that Mayor de Blasio had a big megaphone uh, to that sort of counterpoint and that counter architecture of power in New York. Uh, when Andrew Cuomo came on the scene, he declared, this is what the Democrats shall be. This shall be the dominant way of democratic thinking. And then when you had Bill de Blasio elected, you had someone at, pick your percentage, 75%, 90% as strong saying, no, democratic thinking shall be this, uh, and and a more progressive vision of democratic thinking. So first, I think Governor Cuomo would prefer someone who doesn't create that rub for him. I think he would prefer someone who he doesn't view to be a threat, uh, someone who will perhaps be content to be supplicant to the governor in a way. And I don't know exactly who that person is right now. Um, The governor was close to city council speaker, Corey Johnson. My reporting revealed that they had a pretty good working relationship. They got along fine. Uh, He worked well with outgoing Bronx borough president, Ruben Diaz Jr. Uh, But neither of those men are candidates right now. So does that mean that the governor is going to bulk up a relationship with an Eric Adams? Uh, is he going to find a way to get along with a Scott Stringer? Uh, is there going to be some kind of dark horse coming in? I, I don't think Andrew Cuomo and Andrew Yang um, share much other than a first name. And as to how a mayor would, could, or should deal with the man from Albany, um Maybe get your footing under you before you throw your first punch uh, and think about when and how and why you're going to throw that punch. Mm. Jimmy, thank you so much for uh, joining us and for taking the time. Um, You will come back, we hope, uh, you know, this year and even more as we get to uh, 2022 and the, the center of action moves north again. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Jimmy. I don't know, Harry. I was sort of hearing like a Jimmy Vilkind 2022 vibe. Was that just, was that me? <laughs> no. <laughs> I haven't won an election since the third grade student council. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. FAQ NYC. Jimmy for governor 2022. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jimmy. FAQ. FAQ NYC is a production of Racket Media and a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists and Artists. We're headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy Research and recorded this week from the boroughs of Brooklyn and Manhattan and the city of Albany. A special thank you to our guest this week, Jimmy Bealkind from The Wall Street Journal. Our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be safe, be well, wear a mask, and we'll see you next week.